turn with me to Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can pray with me. Lord, I just thank you today that um, we have this opportunity to gather before you. Lord, I pray that during this Christmas season, Lord, um, that we would take the time to find peace, Lord, um, that you would show us what peace means for us um, during this busy time of year, during this time that brings up lots of different emotions and feelings for um, people, Lord. I just pray that you would help us to find peace. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen. As we were uh, singing that, I was just reminded of a quote by a famous uh, writer, uh, C.S. Lewis, and I wasn't planning on sharing it, so I'm going to paraphrase it's my best, uh, best recollection. It was basically something to the extent of, if you have a desire, a longing within you, something that you've been craving to be satisfied, maybe for you that's a longing to feel loved, a longing to feel accepted, a longing to feel like someone is happy that you're around. If you have a longing within you that you're longing to be satisfied, but nothing of this earth seems to do it, then perhaps a good explanation of it is that what you are meant for is more than what this earth can offer you. And so as we sing those songs like, O come, O come, Emmanuel, my encouragement to you is if you're coming here today feeling broken, feeling tired, feeling unloved, feeling unwanted, feeling anxious, feeling desperate, I think that's precisely the place where God meets us. And I believe that might actually be evidence of that which you are created for. So if you can't tell from uh, the slide that says peace really big, uh, we are talking about peace today. Uh, and I was thinking about this. Uh, did anybody grow up in a church tradition that you would do like a meet and greet during the service? Anybody? Okay. Um, the church I was a part of before did it. We got rid of it like sometimes during like flu season because um, everybody would like shake hands or whatever. And definitely during COVID uh, obviously made sense. To not do that, uh, if anybody else struggles with social anxiety, that also can feel a little like, ooh, I have to go and like say hello to people. But it was also really great. You got to meet people and talk with people, and then one song was pretty much just time to try to rally the troops back together and get cities together. Did anybody grow up in a tradition where you would pass the peace? Anybody do that? Peace be with you and also with you. Um, that's actually a really deep, rich theological tradition. It's not just something that people would do out of passing. Uh, I didn't mean the pun there, passing the peace, but <clears throat> it's not just something people would do tritely, but rather it was aiming to signify that there's something about the peace that we have with one another that is directly related to the peace we have with God. If you think about it in terms of the Lord's Prayer, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, 
And then it goes on to say um, later, and forgive us our debts as we, what? Forgive those who sin against us. There's a connection there between the peace that we have with one another and the peace that we have with God. Now, I say that and you probably think, I don't think Christians tend to be that peaceful with one another, which is a very fair critique. Jesus, I believe it was Jesus himself who said, um, they will know you are my disciples by the way that you love. Does anybody know what comes after that? One another. I remember one time I was trying to make an Instagram post or something about like that passage and say, by the way that you love all these other people. And I read it and it said one another talking about his disciples. How we love other followers of Jesus. Those people that you would never, ever, ever hang out with outside of a relationship with Jesus that now not only are you talking to one another, but you're sitting down at the table to share a meal together. Not just as friends or acquaintances, but as family. Uh, An author named Tish Harrison Warren in her excellent book, Liturgies of the Ordinary, or Liturgy of the Ordinary, wrote this concerning passing the peace. Early Christians were so intent on ensuring that the passing of the peace was a time of real reconciliation and not a mere formality that in third century Eastern churches, a deacon would stand up during the passing of the peace and cry, is there any man that keepeth aught against his fellow? In other words, anybody got a problem with somebody in here? She wrote this, early Christians took seriously Jesus' teaching in Matthew 5, that if someone is approaching the altar and remembers that their brother has something against them, they must leave and go make peace with the offended brother before offering a gift to God. So before the meal of peace or communion, we speak peace to those nearest to us. She then goes on to say that more than once her and her husband have had to uh, leave the service to go and make peace for the argument that they got in on their way to church that morning. When we talk about peace, I don't have to tell you, you probably don't feel that much peace in the world. I mean, just last night, I mean, think about it, right? I mean, the tornadoes that were going on, there's so much chaotic and peace, and not chaotic, there's so much chaos that we like crave peace to come. We see this lack of peace in the news. We see it with our mental health, with the anxiety that we feel around Christmas time. You may feel it with uh, feelings of either feeling lonely and wishing you had more people around or pain of unresolved conflict in your family of origin or anxiety, grief, missing someone who's no longer there, wishing that things are different than they are. We feel it there. We feel it interpersonally in conflict. We feel it personally, wishing I could just feel at home with myself. And we feel it with God. Remember, uh, we were, uh, Tucker over here also led a group that we do called Alpha. Um, In one of the weeks, it was, if you could, one of the questions that we would that they asked was, if you could ask God one question, what would it be? And they showed a video, and multiple people on the video just said, if I could ask God a question, it would be, are we good? Are we good? We feel that disconnect, that like sense that something is off. And in a lot of sense, this season that we're in of Advent is about that, the season of anticipation, expectation. Uh, and I don't know about you, but like Christmas season, like feels, when I think about it, feels like really hopeful and exciting and great and joyful and happy. But if you think about anticipation, does anticipation make anybody else feel nervous, anxious? We don't like waiting. Advent is a season of waiting. 
of anticipation, of recognizing that that which you long for has not yet been fully realized. People would say right now we're in what is known as like a second advent, that the first one was waiting for Jesus to come, and he did, and now we are waiting for him to come again, to make all things right. Theologians would talk about this somewhat in, the, in reference to the already and not yet kingdom of God, meaning there's a sense in which you have access to God and to peace and joy and love now, present. That's true. And there's a sense in which you do not fully get it yet, that there is more to come. You have peace now, but not yet fully, peace that surpasses understanding it makes sense that you don't feel like you have that fully, because you don't. It makes sense that you don't feel like everything is peaceful, because it's not. And so, uh, if that's you today, I just want to encourage you. It makes sense that you don't feel fully at peace. But I do believe there is more peace presently that the Holy Spirit wants to offer you today. I believe that the, one of the fruits of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, I believe that the Lord wants to grow you in peace, to give you a sense of peace that surpasses understanding, peace that's not all that it will be, hopefully when you're 80 or 90 or in eternity. So what we're doing in this series is each week we're talking about a traditional theme of Advent, hope last week, hope in the darkness, peace, peace and chaos, joy next week, and then love in our Christmas gathering on the 23rd. Um, and I mentioned a meal, so I just want to just in case I forget to make this announcement later. On the 23rd, Saturday the 23rd, we are doing kind of a different sort of Christmas gathering. We're doing it at Martha and Bob's house. Can I get y'all to raise your hands real quick? I'll give you all the address again. Uh, we are meeting at 5 p.m. We'll do some songs, we'll have a short message, and we'll have Baja Burrito for dinner. Um, so come hungry, come eat. Uh, it's basically a way of symbolizing this. We have peace with God and peace with one another. We can share in this life together. So that's what we'll do on the 23rd. And so we're talking about these different themes each week by looking at some popular psalms. And the one that we read today is perhaps the most popular psalm that there is. Now, uh, I'm just going to ask this question just out of my own curiosity. This is not related to my sermon other than it's the text. But a number of commentaries I read said that this text was often read at funerals. Anybody else familiar with that? Okay, that was not my context for it. I think I learned it in Awana or some like memory, Bible memory thing when I was a kid. But you can make a case that this is perhaps one of the most memorable passages in all of the scriptures. Now, familiarity brings a lot of really good things. Uh, it can transport you back to the time that you first heard it. It can make you feel safe, make you feel at home, even if you're not sure where you stand with God now or what you think about God. This passage may be one for you that like, brings you back to like, a sweet time of safety with God, where he felt like a refuge and a dwelling place for you. But on the other hand, familiarity can also make it more difficult for you to see something new. See how this passage that was written thousands of years ago has something fresh to offer you today. So what I want to do for us today is really simple. I'm just going to walk through this passage uh, kind of line by line and unpack some of what it is getting at and offer some words to you about peace. So starting out, the Lord is my shepherd. So first thing to note, this is written from the perspective of sheep. Now, obviously, I'm not saying it was written by sheep, 
because that would be a bad joke. Sheer nonsense, if you will. Or wool. Okay, I'm done. I really am done. That is all of my jokes, and I'm glad that I got one or two laughs um, because I would not have gotten those at home. David, so that was not meant to be a dig right after our anniversary yesterday, but it's true. I would not have gotten a laugh. It's a dumb joke. Um, David, who wrote this passage, the psalmist, is speaking of Yahweh, God, the Lord, the Lord as his shepherd. And there's a couple of factors to this that are important for us to note. One, shepherds typically have more than one sheep. They don't just have a pet sheep, a singular pet sheep. Uh, They have multiple sheep. Fair? So David here is saying, even though he is our shepherd, I have a personal connection with him enough to say he is mine. He is my shepherd. Secondly, David himself had been a shepherd. He was well acquainted with sheep and the role of shepherds. He knew things like how prone sheep are to wander and what they needed for guidance, safety, and care. So David here puts the Lord in the position of what he had previously done for sheep. Like David was a shepherd to sheep, the Lord is David's shepherd. This is not quite the same, uh, but I think about this in relation to my, my dad was a, uh, was, is a doctor. It would be like my dad saying, the Lord is my doctor, but not quite the same because those are two people and not a shepherd and sheep. Or a rancher saying, uh, I'm the cattle, the Lord is my rancher, or you know, whatever particular thing that you're trying to get at. Or me as a pastor, the Lord is my pastor. David compares himself to a sheep, less than the shepherd, in need of guidance, protection, and care. And I want you to get this. In the place that David would have had experience and potentially expertise, he says, I trust God. The place that I know the things, the place that I know what I'm supposed to do to care for these sheep, even more so. The thing that I ought to be able to boast in, more so, I trust in him and his guidance and direction over my life. The Lord is my shepherd means I need a shepherd. And it's also a deference to the authority of the Lord. More than I trust my own ways to guide, protect, or care for me, I trust God. I need guidance. I need safety. I need care. Relatedly, the language of shepherd was also a label used in this context for kings who were described as shepherds of their people. So this was a way for David to say, the Lord is my shepherd, the Lord is my king. We see this play out, uh, the shepherd language, in places like Jeremiah 23, verses 1 through 4, if you want to look another time, in Ezekiel 34, where kings had a responsibility to do things like care for and protect their people, and yet failed to do so. In contrast, the scriptures make it abundantly clear God does exactly what a good shepherd is supposed to do. Guide, protect, and care for their people. So relatedly, this means David is saying God is the one who I go to for all of these things, guidance, safety, and care. And so my question for us just starting out, the Lord is my shepherd. Who is it that is your shepherd? Who are you going to for guidance? What are you going to for guidance? To find protection, to find safety, to find care, to have your deepest needs and longings met. Where are you going? What is motivating you to make your decisions? Is it a desire for wanting to feel loved, accepted, to be successful, 
to get the approval of someone. David says, the Lord is my shepherd, meaning none of those things that I think might offer me this will be able to offer me guidance, protection, and care like the Lord can. I'm trusting my true shepherd. Jesus uh, later on builds on this image in John chapter 10 where he says, I am the good shepherd. And he says, uh, the good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. Now this I know maybe not all of y'all grew up in church, but I did. So when I say, like, Jesus died for my sins and rose again on the third day, I can say that and feel absolutely nothing. Anybody else relate to that a little bit? It's crazy. Like, it's crazy that Jesus died for our sins. And this picture of, like, a shepherd dying for his sheep, like, just think Think about it for a second. If on the news, in the midst of all the crazy news that's out there, if they told a story of a literal shepherd who went and died for their sheep, what would you think about that shepherd? Crazy? Priorities out of whack? This doesn't make sense. It's a powerful thing. The good shepherd lays down his life for a sheep. And there's multiple things we could draw on from John, John 10. But here's kind of what I want to get at. This just phrase that Jesus refers to himself, I am, which there he's connecting himself to, to Yahweh, to God, the one true God. He says, I am the good shepherd. So I just want to pull on those words. One, the. The is a definite article as opposed to a or a or those would be the two in that option. Um, I was going to say and, but that's irrelevant because it's got a consonant. So welcome to my head. <laughs> the meaning he is the only. There is none other. He is the one. And then good, uh, which means not only like I like it, good, but beautiful has connotations of being morally excellent. Uh, Some would say it also has connotations of him being like the true one, the one which every other shepherd would be an imitation of. Every other shepherd points to the one true shepherd, that he is the standard, the best, the morally excellent, the beautiful, the righteous shepherd. And so when we read this, we can say, Jesus is my shepherd. He is my guide, my safety, and my care, the one who loves me and cares for me. So what does this entail? We see next this line, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Anybody else put together a Christmas list? I have things that I want. On first glance, this sounds like I have no desires, right? If I trust in God enough, then whatever desires I have will be done. If you want to think about it this way, perhaps just simply the fact that they're making this declaration, I shall not want, is a declaration that, like, I do. (laughs) Perhaps a better way to translate it would be something like, I lack nothing. Or I shall not be in want. He gives me that which I need. It's an older sense of saying, I shall not want. Everything that I need, he will provide. As the ancient, or not ancient, as the older hymn, Great as Thy Faithfulness Goes, All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. In other words, if God is my shepherd, I trust that he knows what I need even better than I do. Now, I can say that. How many of us in reality think we know better than God? You might not say it like that, but maybe you know it. God tells you something, God leads you in a direction, and you're like, I don't know, that doesn't really seem like a good good option. 
St. Ignatius of Loyola had a line that was something like this, sin is unwillingness to trust that what God wants for me is only my deepest happiness. Uh, recently in my life, like the, the area around like the Lord convicting me of sin has started to shift uh, in the sense that I think uh, I would often approach my relationship with God like just feeling like I had all this bad stuff that he just like hated and that it just was like awful and I would just always feel this really guilt and shame with God. Increasingly, the Lord has been revealing to me that he highlights areas of sin in my life not to ultimately bring me harm, but to bring me healing. That he wants to do something good in me. When he highlights to me, hey, the way that you interacted with your wife today was not the best way that you should have done that. That's not to make me just like sit there and feel terrible about it. The quicker that I say, oh, you want to heal this pattern in my life to make me more whole. It changes my perspective that I trust that what he wants is actually my healing, that I trust that where I may want short-term pleasure, he wants my long-term healing and happiness. So saying, I shall not be in want, is a declaration that he will take care of me. He will take care of my deepest longings, and I trust him to do so. I trust that he will give me exactly what I need, and that I don't have to go out and always try to fight for it. And he'll give me what I need, even when I don't understand it. Then the next line, he makes me lie down in green pastures. Depending on your translation, some might say he lets me lie down in green pastures, which when I read that, I was like, those sound very different. You pushing me down, or are you saying, you can take a nap if you'd like? Sometimes I need to be pushed down and said, take a nap. But in its basic connotation, this is about resting the sheep might be allowing, but it's to rest them. The point is God brings us to a place of rest in a place of abundance. So where are they lying down? In green pastures. Anybody know what sheep eat? Grass. Amidst other things. Here the picture given is that the place they are to rest is filled with so much in abundance of grass that they don't have to worry about finding it again. They can go to sleep in the place where they would graze and wake up, and there's still plenty to go around. What a beautiful picture this is. Have you ever found yourself feeling like you had to work and work and work and work to get all that you could done before you could rest? Similarly to in the, the story of creation, Right after humans were made on day six, on day seven, God rested and instituted the Sabbath. It's not something that you do to earn rest. It starts with rest, resting in his presence, resting in what he offers, resting in who he is. So he takes the sheep to rest and eat there. And then the second picture is related. He leads me beside still waters or resting waters. Similarly, he guides the sheep to a place where they can get the water they need. In essence, God cares for the sheep's basic needs. He guides the sheep to where they need to go, to a place where their needs are not only satiated, but ultimately satisfied with more than enough to go around, where you can go to sleep and not worry where the next proverbial meal is going to come from, but there will be more than enough to go around to eat to your full, and there still be plenty. He will satisfy our deepest longing. And as our shepherd, he cares for us in ways we can't care for ourselves. Now, uh, if you're like me, you probably think that sounds nice in theory, but my lived experience is not that. 
It actually feels like I have to rest and then I wake up and then I gotta go fight and look for more. It doesn't feel like this. Once again, I think this is where this Advent already not yet language comes in handy, that there's a sense in which we have access to it now, but also a sense in that God's ultimate plan for you is that all who follow Jesus, there is a promise in the book of Revelation that talks about he'll wipe away every tear from our eyes, death will be no more, the love that you crave, the hope that you would love to have, the peace that surpasses understanding will be fully realized one day. That's his ultimate plan and goal for you. So with that, he leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. Or he refreshes my soul. Now this word there for soul is not what we often think about with soul. Uh, we think about a soul as like some immaterial part of us that exists within our physical body and that one day will evaporate from our bodies and rise up to heaven theoretically if we follow Jesus and go to be with God. But biblically speaking, that's not what a soul is. Uh, it's less so that you have a soul and more so that you are a soul. In its most basic connotation, this word uh, in Hebrew has a connotation of like a throat. And if you think about this in relation to what he just said, he leads me besides still waters. What do you do when you, if you're a sheep, you're not a sheep, but if you were going to water, what would you do? Drink. What does your throat help you do? Yeah, swallow, great. I'm not a medical professional, so I'm glad y'all answered that question. Not like I have a hard time knowing what our throat does, but you know what I mean. It's like our thirst being quenched, satisfied. He restores me. He refreshes me. And this word there for restores has, uh, deals with being put into a state of being. That he puts me into a place of restoration. He puts me into a place of refreshment. Implying what? If he restores my soul, it implies that I need to be restored. It implies that I don't feel refreshed. It implies that I do feel thirsty and that I need one to satisfy me. He restores my soul. Next line. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Now, this word there for lead is a different word than was used when it said he leads me beside the still waters. This word, uh, as one uh, lexicon put it, it's the term for guidance in the wilderness that we see in other places in the Hebrew scripture. So for example, when the Israelites were led out of slavery in Egypt and being led into the promised land, and in between that time, they found themselves in the wilderness, in between where they were and where they were supposed to be. They found themselves in the wilderness. This word, he leads me in paths of righteousness, has connotations of him leading us in that in-between space. The space where that which we hope to be realized has not yet fully been realized. In other words, when I'm not yet to the place where my deepest love, longing for love is fully satisfied, where my deepest longing for peace is fully satisfied, when it does not quite feel like I'm lying down in lush grass by still waters, there he leads me in the right way to go. And why? It tells us for his name's sake. And I've said this here before, but in, uh, the name in this context is not simply like the, the letters of the name. It's a reference to who they are. It's saying he does this for himself. God looks out for us. God cares for us. Not simply because he loves you, and he does, but because he is love. It's pertinent to who he is. He is 
Let me phrase it this way. It's probably a better way to get at it. He is personally vested in you. He is like has a stake in the matter of you. He cares about you and what happens with you. He looks out for you. He promised that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. He is vested in that, not just for your sake, but for his. Do you hear the distinction? He will care for us and guide us in the right direction. And then the next line, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, or other translations might say, or the darkest valley, First note here, there is no implication, as far as I can tell, that this is separate from the path of righteousness. In other words, there is no implication from the text that says that God is not, that, let me rephrase that, there is no uh, implication in the text that says you walking in this place that feels incredibly dark is because you are not walking with God. Some of us need to be reminded that often to get to the place that God has promised you, you have to walk through the darkest valley. This does not inherently mean that you are walking in like disobedience because you're walking in the darkest valley. I'd argue that the dark valley is precisely the place where the light of God will shine most clearly. So even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. I will fear no evil. Once again, as someone who struggles with anxiety, you're like, ah, okay, cool. Like, I will fear what? The word there for evil can mean bad. I will fear no bad. I will fear no harm. I will feel no danger, destruction. Bad things come out in the dark, right? Watch a scary movie and you'll, don't watch, whatever. That's not a sermon point. The dark is often associated with bad things coming towards you, coming to get you. I won't fear the destruction. I won't fear the harm that could come my way. Why? Because it won't come my way? Is that what it says? What's the next line? For you are with me. You are with me. At Christmas time, we, we celebrate Emmanuel, meaning God with us, God with us in the good, God with us in the bad, God with us in the mountains and the valleys, God with us in our joy and in our pain, God with us in the lush grass and still waters, and with us in the valley of the shadow of death. As Psalm 91 says, when he calls to me, God, this is from God, when he calls to me, I'll answer him, I will be with him in trouble. As Psalm 139 talks about, where can I go to escape your presence? If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. To paraphrase it, if I go to the highest of highs, if I go to the lowest of lows, no matter where I go, you are with me. I cannot escape your presence. So does this mean no danger will come my way? Just look at Jesus. Of course this does not mean that. He himself was tortured, mocked, and crucified, but the bad did not win. Jesus said, in this world you will have troubles, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. For us who follow Jesus, this means that we trust the one that resurrected from the dead is faithful to do what he has always done. As Kenneth was saying earlier in his prayer, to bring beauty from ashes, hope from hopelessness, peace out of chaos, and life out of death. If I want to rephrase it this way, the path to resurrection is always through crucifixion. Our peace is not dependent upon our circumstances, but upon the one who goes with me. 
to put it kind of how I was trying to get at it last week, the peace is not simply something that he offers me. He himself is my peace. He is my calm, non-anxious presence in the midst of the storm. Then the psalmist says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Now this word for comfort is not simply like uh, sympathy, like he feels with you. And I, I do believe he does feel with you. The word for compassion literally means to suffer with. And there's a word used for, I believe it's Jesus and the Father in the New Testament that refers to God being moved by compassion into action. It deals with the gut, like feeling it in your gut. That God feels with you. He feels for you. He wants to care for you. And that motivates him to action. But this word for comfort has connotations of encouragement. And maybe y'all are smarter than me on this. I just recently realized that and courage has to do with being given courage. Discourage has to do with courage being removed from you. Like, makes sense. When it says that he comforts you, you who feel discouraged, he breathes, gives you courage, enables you to step into that which seems fearful, seems unknown. And how does he do it? Two instruments we see of the shepherd that bring him comfort. First, the rod, which was often carried by Palestinian shepherds to ward off wild beasts, to protect and fight off danger. And secondly, the staff, or like the shepherd's crook, to guide and control the sheep. In other words, in the darkest night, when it feels like there is no hope, things aiming to squash our peace and make us terrified, I can trust that he is with me and that God protects me and guides me. Furthermore, frequently this word for rod there has connotations of royal authority and rule in the scriptures. In other words, when it's saying that his rod and his staff comfort us, it's not simply saying like God is this timid little shepherd boy trying to fight off wolves in the wilderness, but rather he is fighting them off as king who knows who is one. He's not scared of all the things that we're scared of. That does not mean that he belittles your fear. In fact, I believe he meets you in it. He weeps with us. He feels with us. But he's not afraid of the things that you're afraid of because he knows who wins. He's not like a timid little shepherd boy there. He is a confident king, not worried about all those things because he knows who wins. God is bigger, better, stronger, and more powerful than anything that comes your way. He's not protecting out of fear or out of a losing posture. God, in this context of rod and staff, is both your protection and your guide. Your guide and your safety. And if I may say, too, you don't always see everything clearly when you're in the dark. Y'all have known this, right? Have you ever walked around in the dark? Felt like you couldn't see anything? You're trying to feel around? You don't know all the things that God is protecting you and shielding you of. You don't know the ways in which he's guiding you and can, like helping sh shield you from things that could bring you harm. You don't know. And relatedly, um, just a question. Anybody have a startle reflex? Our uh, six-month-old kind of does some, which makes sense, he's six months old. But if you like make like a loud noise or whatever around him, sometimes he'll jump when something surprises him. And I wonder if sometimes for us, whenever God corrects us or like tries to guide us a little bit with his staff, if we also don't have like a, a startle reflex, that God 
actually, as I mentioned earlier with conviction, wants to bring you healing, not harm. What I've come to believe about correction from the Lord when he guides me onto the right path for his namesake is that sometimes I have to embrace short-term discomfort in order to embrace long-term healing. Once again, not a medical professional. This is not medical advice in any way, shape, or form, but hopefully the metaphor will be helpful. Imagine, for example, that you had something very chronic and painful that you were dealing with, and you had two options, one of which you could take a painkiller. It's gonna make you feel better, but you're not ever gonna move into thriving. You're gonna survive, and it'll be okay. Uh, Immediately bring some help. The other option is probably in conjunction with that, but you could have a surgery It's probably going to be painful, have rehab, but it's going to lead you into, cool, I've got a hip replacement, now I can walk around better again. I think most of us intuitively know, long term, if I can afford it, leave all the medical care stuff around off that, I guess, but um, long term, hip replacement will do me better. Is that fair? Sometimes we want God to just be our painkiller and not our surgeon. We want him to stop the pain and not actually do that which will bring us the most long-term healing. Like, let me just phrase this for you, like in in relation to like um, insecurity, right? Um, You feel insecure, and sometimes I pray out to God, God, help me not feel so insecure. God doesn't only want you to not feel insecure, he wants to make you secure, to feel secure, operate in security, change the way that you operate and walk around. He's not simply interested in the pain stopping and then you still acting insecurely but not feeling it. He wants you to operate within a secure attachment with who he is. And so when it says he comforts us, he encourages us, he, he, it's not simply that he like makes us feel better in the moment, but he encourages you. Keep going. I am with you. As Matthew 28 says, go and make disciples and be sure of this. I will be with you always, even until the end of the age. And then in the next verse, we see what it seems like, the next section, the psalmist seems to switch metaphors. This is from talking about sheep to talking about a host. Now, there's some ways of thinking about this still with sheep and shepherd, but I want you to see this. It says, you prepare or arrange or set a table before me in the presence of my enemies. And um, let me just say this. If you're a person who has a gift of hospitality, you set up the table for people, you prepare a table for someone, you arrange a table for them. That is a very godly, kind thing to do. Early church often centered around the table and eating together. So a couple things with this. David says he has enemies, that there are those that wish to do him harm. Now David obviously had flesh and blood enemies who would want to attack him and kill him at various times in in his life, but what he's saying is so profound. In that place, in the presence of those that wish to hurt me, God sets a table for me to eat, to lay down my weapons and take up a vulnerable posture, sitting, putting my bow, my my sling and my rock, whatever, I'm putting that away. I'm gonna sit and do one of the most human things I can do, eat, I need to eat. In the presence of his enemies, God arranges a table for him. In other words, This is such a posture of assurance. No matter what is going on, I can sit in the presence of God. Now, some of us may not have physical enemies like this, but you have enemies that are at war for your heart, your attention, and your affection. And God prepares a table for you. The question is, do you sit down with him? 
Or are you so afraid of the enemies that you don't? In the presence of your fear, your distraught, the lies you believe, do you sit down to say, God, let me feast in your presence. Let me choose to be filled, not with other things, but with you. And in reading this, um, we were talking about this in our growth group on Tuesday. We were like, is this, why is he saying this? Is he like gloating? Is he saying, ha ha, look at me, I'm like sitting with God, ha ha, look at, you don't get to eat, I'm eating. I don't think that's what he's doing. Um, at least I don't think what God's doing through this passage. I don't know all of what David's trying to get at. I think when we look at this in the New Testament, we see the table become a metaphor for life with God. That those who were once enmity, enemies with God, had enmity with God, are invited to sit down at the table of God as his children. To be welcomed in. We also see strong examples in the scriptures as well and in church history uh, where people who were once enemies with one another are invited not only to go and eat their meals separately at different places, but to sit down at the same table and eat together, to all lay down their weapons and their ways of attacking one another and to sit down. So I believe this gives an invitation. You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Perhaps for some of us need to ask, would you welcome those that you do not like to your table? Before you criticize them online or in your head, would you sit down with them over a meal, sharing in your common humanity that you are all made in the image of God? Then he says, you anoint my head with oil and my cup overflows. Couple things with this. This is talking about blessing and God pouring out his life on us. The Bible Project has a great video on uh, anointing with oil I'd encourage you to look at. But same sort of image of like caring for the sheep. He cares for my deepest needs and he blesses me with more than I can imagine. And then to, to get to the end of this passage, surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. Follow perhaps isn't a strong enough word here. Uh, his word has connotations for chasing, for pursuit. Surely your goodness and mercy will pursue me, will be after me. And think about this in context. He just talked about, I'm sitting down in the presence of my enemies. Who would you anticipate is going to pursue you? The enemies. But rather, he has such confidence to say that even if all that stuff is true, more than that, that will stop one day. Surely his goodness and mercy will pursue me, will be after me will long for me. In other words, more than you want to experience his goodness and mercy, I believe God wants you to experience his goodness and mercy. He is before you, behind you, all around you, wants a relationship with you, he loves you, he's for you, he's not against you. He's saying goodness and mercy. Goodness meaning not just like everything feels happy, but it like has connotations of flourishing, like things being well. God's goodness is after you, and his mercy, which has connotations of like steadfast love, his faithfulness, his loving kindness that both guide and pursue us. When we feel unlovable, unwanted, it's an encouragement. He wants us enough to pursue us. He's after you. He wants a relationship with you. I think sometimes the invitation is just, will you say yes? Will you say yes? Are you open? He wants that for you. He goes on, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Uh, from my understanding, um, the Hebrew word here used for dwell is related to the word for restore in verse three. Um, I'm not a Hebrew scholar. My Hebrew actually is not that, not that great from seminary. It was like my first class that I took. But I believe it also uh, comes from the same root word as like repentance. Really interesting. 
maybe just to me, but it's interesting. So I will dwell in the house of the Lord. I will go to this place to be restored, to be refreshed, to have myself changed, to have myself filled and satisfied. I will continue being restored. It's an ultimate assurance that no matter what comes my way, my future is secure. So with all of this, I can have peace. So what is peace? Uh, We often think about it as the absence of something, the absence of pain, the absence of conflict, the absence of anxiety, the absence of war. But peace is more than that. Peace is the presence of something else. In the Old Testament, the main word for peace is shalom, which connotates a fullness, a completeness, like something being made whole, being reconciled, being made right. We see it in Jeremiah chapter 29, where it says to seek the welfare of the city where I sent you, to seek its flourishing, to seek its wholeness. Uh, The word uh, Jerusalem, this is from uh, Josh Butler in his book, Skeleton in God's Closet. The word for Jerusalem is pronounced Yerushalom in Hebrew and means literally the shalom of God. Shalom is the abundant flourishing that results when God, the human community, and creation are in right relationship and intimate communion. It's more than just a lack of pain, a lack of conflict. It is the presence of something else. I think of it almost like this uh, Japanese art form called kintsugi. Has anyone heard of that before? I think Kenneth, you told me about this recently. It's this Japanese art form of putting broken pottery pieces back together with gold and forming something even more beautiful. Um, Carly didn't know I was going to talk about that when she picked this graphic, but it's kind of like this, that it takes something that looked broken and reconciles it, makes it into something more beautiful and more, like, even stronger. That God can take what is broken in your life and the pieces and make it whole. But not just like it never happened, but actually can take that thing which was bad and turn it and use it for good and for beauty. You can think about it with stained glass, too. If you take an individual piece of stained glass, it's going to be sharp, right? It's probably going to cut you. But if you put it together, it can form something beautiful. And when God's light shines through it, it can portray something incredibly beautiful. So three ways we have peace. One, we have peace with God. We see this in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are invited into relationship with God. Secondly, we can have peace not only with God, but learn to have peace within, that we can learn to live into the reality that we are made right with God and to pursue peace within and with others. I think this goes to that like internal healing that God wants to bring for you in your life. And then lastly, to have peace with others. As 2 Corinthians 5 talks about, we are Christ's ambassadors, given this wonderful message of reconciliation. Um, and this reconciliation, this ministers of peace, is not... Uh, simply saying that you have an informed opinion about every conflict that's going on in the world. Um, Sometimes I think in today's day and age we get more caught up with what's out there than what's in here. Um, We can care about peace in a big way but not care about it in this way, if you know what I'm saying. As Tish Harrison Warren said, this is such a good line, she says, I'm a pacifist who yells at her husband. Isn't that good? In C.S. Lewis's The Screwtape Letters, a senior demon Screwtape coaches a junior devil on how to infect a man's relationship with others and said this, keep his mind off the most elementary duties by directing it to the most advanced and spiritual ones. Aggravate that most useful of human characteristics, the horror and neglect of the obvious. He continues, I've had patients of my own so well in hand that they could be turned at a moment's notice from impassioned prayer for a wife's or son's soul to beating or insulting the real wife or son without a qualm. Peace begins not on the large scale, 
and here. Really, here and here and in here. Do you care more about what's out there than this piece here? You can do violence with things other than weapons. I'm gonna invite the band to come back up as I offer this last, last two things. One, uh, there's a difference between peacekeeping and peacemaking. Peacekeeping aims to keep the status quo and maybe remove conflict. Peacemaking or peace building aims less so for that and more so for harmony, peace, flourishing, goodness. That I will even go into that which is uncomfortable to bring that long-term healing and help. Because God is interested in flourishing. And so what I want to do is I want to lead us in this moment of prayer from Philippians chapter 4 that talks about peace that surpasses understanding. The end of verse 5 says, remember the Lord is coming soon. Perfect for Advent. Then it says, don't worry about anything. Instead, pray about everything. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he has done. Then you will experience God's peace, which exceeds anything we can understand. His peace will guard your hearts and minds as you live in Christ Jesus. Now, I think when I used to read that verse, to be honest, like, I think I kind of stopped reading that verse. It's like, don't worry about anything. I'm like, you tell me don't worry about it doesn't usually help. But I've come to experience that whenever I feel anxiety, whenever I feel something negative, it actually becomes an opportunity to have intimacy with God. That actually when I feel really anxious, when I feel really overwhelmed, when I'm walking through grief or pain or whatever, it actually becomes an opportunity for intimacy and a depth of closeness with God that I would not have had otherwise. So instead of just allowing it to fester alone, bring God into it or rather recognize his presence with you in it. Tell God what you need and thank him for all he's done. So what I wanna do is just lead us in a moment of prayer. So if you would, um, close your eyes, not that closing your eyes is anything magical, but just to be present. And come Holy Spirit. We've heard your word. I believe you have something for us in this moment, in this time, in this space. Meet us here. God, I'm just reminded that oftentimes we're so busy running and all of life feels so chaotic that peace feels uncomfortable. I don't know what to do in it. So God, would you calm that? Would you calm our souls? Help us to be present with you right now in this moment. And Holy Spirit, would you highlight for us individually areas in which we feel worried? That we feel anxious? Maybe we wouldn't use that word, but highlight the thing that we are longing to receive. Highlight that for us, Holy Spirit. And God, I pray right now for everyone in the room that we just, you would show us. And you can pray something simple like this. Come Holy Spirit. Come Holy Spirit. Show us where you are present with us now. Open our eyes to see you. I know we can't fully see you, but open up our eyes to see you. And give us peace. In Jesus' name, amen. And as we sing, just continue to ask the Lord to show himself to you. I believe he's faithful to do so. 
Hey, thanks for watching the service. We pray that it blessed you and helped you grow closer to God. If you are in the Nashville area, we'd love for you to join us sometime. If you're not in the Nashville area, we'd love to help you get connected with the local church if you don't already have one. But we pray that God blesses you this week and that he grows you closer in your relationship with him and with your community, that he uses you in a powerful way to be a vessel of his good news in everywhere that you go. May God bless you.